Welcome to What We Don't Know. I'm your host, Xander Schultz. Today we're talking to Pastor Mike McBride of the Black Church Pack. Pastor Mike has done an incredible job organizing this election season. He's built an unprecedented coalition of black churches who are now working to move the needle in terms of justice reform and racial justice in this country. The guy is a a genius and low-key one of the most powerful political figures in our country. So I'm super excited to have him on the show. Let's get into it. Before we dive in in the moment, I want to make sure everyone understands what Black Church Pack is. How do you how do you give kind of the short blurb on what Black Church Pack is all about and what, what you all are doing? Black Church Pack is a is a national network of faith clergy, Black Church clergy, Black Church artists and influencers and organizers who are committed to activating the relational infrastructure of Black religious institutions across the country to defeat the devil. <laughs> I want to describe the devil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've got we've got all sorts of up ballot and down ballot devils. Uh, I, I was going to say recently, but it really is probably not you know nothing new. And you've seen it's nothing new. I think a lot of America's waking up to just how intense it is. But you've probably been staring at that problem for a long time, I assume. Yeah, I mean, you know, just keep it real. You know, black churches uh, for several hundred years have been the primary anti-white supremacy organization in the country. And so we've been waking up every day across these centuries trying to defeat anti-Black racism and all the many ways that uh, the system tries to prey and destroy and harm Black folks. So absolutely, it's a lot of problems and, and uh, or problematic candidates and elected officials up and down the ballot. But uh, our job is to resist it, hopefully at times elect some righteous candidates and try to make a political reality that uh, frees us from violence and arbitrary death. When you say Black churches have historically been the institution that fought white supremacy, what are some underrated victories of the Black church that maybe aren't attributed to Black churches, right? We talk about them, but the Black churches are not, or that, that network is not given proper credit. Well, I mean, if you name any freedom fighter, say up until the 1980s, they all came out of the black church. (laughs) So let's just start there. I mean, like- Reverend Martin Luther King. (laughs) You can go Patty Lou Hamer, you can go Harriet Tubman, you can go Sojourner Truth, you can go Frederick Douglass. I mean, you just just pick one, just pick one out there. Adam Clayton Powell, Jesse Jackson, uh, the Freedom Riders, you know, um, you know, SNCC was not church-based young people per se, a lot of college students, but they met in churches, right? So the, the institution, I'm not talking about people who necessarily being baptized as a Christian per se, I'm talking about the institution. It was the school in the week, during the week, the club on a Saturday, and then the religious place on a Sunday. This was the center of black life. Is, is that because, cause you're not just talking about pe- people who come out of the church. You're talking about the institutions and the members of the church. Is that because there's this natural like zero to one that happens? Like there's already this community that's of a certain size. And so like a lot of times it's hard to hit those. If you're coming from other spaces, if you're not coming from that network, it's hard to hit that first inflection point of like, I've got my first hundred people organizing for me and my first 150 or whatnot. And churches just kind of not only have that like that size of a crowd, but also people who have agreed that they're on the same mission, right? That there's already buy-in with this like higher mission. 
Yeah, I mean, ju just think about it. There's no institution or organization besides the black church that, that has gathered every week more black people. Like, in a, no shade to anybody's organization. Right. But largest NAACP, Black Lives Matter, Urban League chapter, is likely smaller than the average size of a black church, which is like 60 to 70 members. And so it's just important to know that for good or for bad, this is a gathering place for black people for 300 something years. And we share the same stories, the same struggles, we strategize. We don't always agree and we have growing edges, but this is a freedom fighting institution. It's not right. just one around religious uh, orientation. Were you, uh, a church member that was an activist and you put that together or was it always like I've got to organize churches or were you like oh man we already have these communities over here I don't know why I'm working so hard over here to, to bring people together well I, I got beat up by some cops in 1999 while I was a youth pastor in San Jose and I observed how my church rallied around me and it mm. created a power base for me to try to get justice and I also heard from the young people and their families in our congregation that they were dealing with some of the same challenges, but they didn't think the church was a place to, you know, champion their cause. And so from my own painful experience and my own observation that we have an untapped power base, I said strategically from 1999 up until this moment, I'm going to organize black churches because the pain is there, the people is there, and the power is there. And with people and power, you can resolve pain. And that's uh, really the strategic nature of how and why we do this work. And I will just say Black churches across the country are by and large filled with Black people who experience the pain of poverty and violence. And so we must respond. We must be organized. It's our obligation. How many people are in your network? Like how many churches, how many leaders, how many people, folks are in your network? I told someone the other day, I'm like, Pastor Mike is low key, one of the most powerful people in the country. Like, no, no one knows like quite how many folks are involved in what he's doing. Yeah, I mean, we easily have deep relationships with four of the major national black church denominations that number in the probably five to 10 million folks that we right. have regular access to. The, the artists and influencers who have platforms, they have a, probably an overlapping but a identified constituency of millions of folks. I have a team of about a dozen organizers on the ground across the country. Um, we're in about 20 states. Um, we can activate some networks of people to take action in the tens of thousands of people at a given time. And yeah, you know, we're not trying to be famous. We're trying to be effective. And so we just put our head down and, and try to win, you know, win around gun violence prevention or reimagining public safety, win around ending mass incarceration, win around elections. And, and hopefully the proof is in the pudding. When did you start building this network? So you got beat up in San Jose, your church rallies around you, helps you out. Do you immediately start, start building this network? What's that journey look like? So I went to Duke uh, undergrad, I'm, I'm sorry, I went to Duke Divinity School for graduate school from 2002 to 2005. I came home, started my church or took over our family church. And so from 2005 until now, I've been leveraging my lifelong relationships to get folks engaged in the issue of justice mm. and organizing and peacemaking. And so it's been about a 15 year journey, 15 year process. You know, it's taken about that long <laughs> to get some folks to buy in. But Donald Trump had a way of, uh, you know, convincing folks who kind of wanted to stay on the sidelines. Right. And uh, you ain't got to convince them no more.
Isn't that the truth? I know there's, there's definitely an alternate universe where in 20, you know, 35 or whatever, we're way more progressive and, and, you know, inclusive because of this whole thing than like in a, in a nightmare universe where Hillary wins and we keep thinking everything's all good and we don't have the energy and political activism that we do now. Uh, this, this hasn't been good, but you know, let's, the story's not over yet to your point. Yeah. And I'll just say it, it's the end of the story hasn't been told. I mean, I still think things can go either way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, we're seeing the the protest fatigue set in. Mm-hmm. We're seeing COVID continue to re-emerge in ways that we're we're not super clear about our ability to to responsibly defeat it. We don't know what the pharmaceuticals and so that th- things are still quite precarious and in the black community in particular. We're still seeing structural violence and exclusion happening. And so, you know, while Trump has put a face on the evil. I'm still not convinced that the overall majority of folks in this country are real clear about the evil beyond Trump. Mm-hmm. And that's what our work has to be about, right? Hillary, of course, could have covered that a little bit, but I don't think any of us were going to let her get a free ride by any stretch of the imagination. Right. But now we know it's go time. It's organizing time. It's, it's power building time. It's winning time. We can't stay on the sideline. We can't take anything for granted. We got to fight like our lives depends on it because it does. What's been, you know, you, you've been doing this 15 years. I'm sure you've seen, as you've seen a lot of energy, you've seen some victories lately too. What's been when you like smile and you're like, man, if we can just keep doing this or doing things like this, like, you know, we can get this whole thing done. We can start moving towards this world we're trying to build. What's been, uh, what's some of the, like a moment or two that you're proudest of that your work, that your work has resulted in? So, you know, three things I can thought I'm most proud of the way we have gotten black religious institutions to work together across their differences. Mm. I mean, this is an unprecedented coalition of black, churches and bishops that we've created. It's never happened before, or at least it hasn't happened in the last 30, 40 years by folks on that mission. And so I'm very proud of that. I'm proud of our ability also to build our own tech and data tools so we don't have to depend on the establishment's tools in order for us to kind of have some self-determination. And then I think the third thing is I'm excited that we're able to uh, build across with some of the young people. We're trying to make this intergenerational effort. Um, and so that's a huge, huge, um, exciting thing of mine. Phil Agnew, uh, Tiffany Danae Lofton. Uh, these are some of my young heroes, Tef Poe. Uh, you know, I love these young people. So the fact they let us rock with them is very, very special to me. Phil's a grantee of Defeat by Tweet as well. Phil's amazing. Big great Phil. guy. That's He's my great man. Guy. I, that's, that's Phil, Phil Agnew, now for uh, Erica Purnell. Man, them young soldiers, I I, I want to just retire and get a range to them, whatever little range I got. Y'all just take it and run. It is pretty cool, like the younger generation coming up. What has been, you know, you talked about this was an unprecedented group of uh, Black churches coming together from different denominations. What were some of the hurdles before that have stopped that? That idea, like, what did you have? What did you have to do to make that happen where it hadn't happened before? So, you know, obviously people have lots of theological dissonance. Unfortunately, the divisions within Black churches around human sexuality, around abortion, around, you know, how people explain or perceive God, that those were very serious divisions. And in some respects, they still are. But we agreed that we're going to set aside our differences and defeat this existential threat. And by, by focusing on the existential threat, people have been able to talk to each other. Right. 
right? right? Realize, you know what? What we don't agree on is not really a deal breaker like we thought. And so, right. so that that has been one thing. But I when also you say, just to, just to slow you down one second so I make sure I understand, when you say this, when you say by focusing on this, is that this white supremacy as an institution? Is that this policing? Is that this Trump? Like, what do you mean when you say that? All of it, <laughs> all of it. I mean, Got it. I, we try to definitely clarify that our enemy is white supremacy that has been structured mm-hmm. by the powers of this age, not just this country, of this age. And so our task is to first protect black folk from that structural violence. And so because you know, we got women and queer folks and poor folks who are black. Mm-hmm. Right? We can talk all day about why they are female, queer, poor, whatever. We can talk about that later, but we can't talk right. about it they're not safe. Right, right. right. And so, so, you know, it's, it, it's taken a few years to break through that, right? That and, conversation is up higher on Maslow's hierarchy. And it's like, we got to yeah. take care of this level first and we haven't shored this up and we need to bond together to shore this up first. Absolutely. And, and the process of shoring that up actually begins to thin out the, the differences. Because when you fall in love with people, you, you accommodate a lot of things even if you don't agree, right? Right, 100%. <laughs> You, you, you don't have to agree 100% with somebody in order. Not only you accommodate, you, you'll find a way to justify that you actually believe this thing now. You're like, well, let me, let me find my way over here because it's uncomfortable. Yeah, because it's the dissonance. Much of our discomfort is our mental dissonance. It's not no, right. like, there's no physical dissonance, like just because we, we right. don't agree with something. It's mental, it's spiritual. When your heart gets overwhelmed with love, then the dissonance dissipates and now you have resonance. You talked about some things when I, when I asked what you're most proud of, you talked about some things that are like uh, le- less tangible, right? It was you know bringing churches together, getting young people involved, et cetera. What were some tangible wins you've had lately that you're really excited about? So some policies passed, elections won, these types of things. Yeah, so for in the last few years, we've easily been able to scale up in about half a dozen cities, gun violence prevention strategies that have reduced Shootings and homicides in black and brown communities by 30 to 50 percent. Yeah, these were these these weren't I've talked to you about this before. These weren't like easy to operate in cities too that didn't have much violence, right? Yeah, <laughs> like start you started listening out list out the cities that you all have done this work in. Oakland, uh, Baton <laughs> Louisiana, Stockton, California, Camden, New Jersey, we in Chicago, uh Milwaukee. I'm talking about cities. I got a pound of flesh on the ground in them cities, boys. It, right. it, it, it's Michael McBride pound of flesh uh, <laughs> that we leave there. But no, it, it's not been easy at all. Birmingham, Alabama. I mean, we have a network of pastors, churches, and organizers that we had to train and get them used to engaging with, you know, community members. The second thing is the 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 policing, um, reimagining policing work. We've been able to support half a dozen cities or so in passing efforts. Indiana, Indianapolis just got a major victory around this in the last week or so. Oakland, California has got a, a bit of a, some momentum. Uh, some of our folks were involved in the Minnesota effort. We, we got percolating stuff happening all across the country in Orlando and uh, New York and Buffalo, New York and places like that. So, so that's been a huge part. But, but I, I'll also say candidate wise, we've been able to help uh, win elections with people like 
Doug Jones in Alabama. That was a 2017. Right. We were able to help win some prosecutor races in in Philadelphia, in Dallas. Were you all in Orlando? I remember Orlando was a big. Yeah, yeah. Aramis, yeah. yeah. That's, the, that's the homie, absolutely. Tampa, Florida. Yeah, uh, and 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 here, even here in the Bay Area, Richmond, California. So we've been able to do some pretty good electoral work. And I'll just say we now have at least three of our affiliated folks running for elected office. Mm. Uh, Lucy McBeth, she's now running for her second term for the Congress. Raphael Warnock in Georgia running for Senate. Warnock. Who's Warnock yeah. running against? Uh, he, Susie, Susie Loeffler, who's like the owner <laughs> of the Atlanta Dream, and got the whole team like, uh, <laughs> wear Warnock shirts to warm up. That's, that's, that's like that's the most thing, bro. I, I was like, yo, man, how, how does your own employees like warm up on national TV with your opponent's name on their shirt? For, for people who don't know, can you back up and explain what happened? Like, who who is this woman? Who What's this team and what, what they do? Yeah, so, Su- <laughs> so Susie Loeffler is the owner of the WNBA Atlanta Dream. She was very resistant and working behind the scenes to keep the WNBA from doing anything related to Black Lives Matter. Her husband, listen to this, owns the New York Stock Exchange. And that's how wealthy they are, right? Uh, she got dinged for some insider training in the early part of COVID. So Raphael Warnock, who pastors Dr. King's old church, one of the founding members of, of our Black Church Pack, super longtime champion of justice work. He, he decided to run for Senate against her. And so when, obviously when he ran, one of my members, Lasia Clarendon, who's a big social justice sister in the WNBA, you know, just kind of you know, told me what was happening and whatnot. And I was like, man, we got to support Warnock. So they actually started to uh, push back on Susie Loeffler. And so one day they all decided to put on a Raphael Warnock for Senate shirt <laughs> as they went out to warm up at the Atlanta Dream basketball game. I mean, it's like the most gangster thing. I had to make a movie on that. That thing, that thing was just so fascinating to me. But yeah, she uh, she had her whole team like endorsing Warnock publicly against her. And he's now, um, he, he's on the uh, ascension. We need more people to donate to his campaign, obviously, and to make sure he gets across the finish line. But he he's a little bit edged uh, in front of her by a few points in the last week. Yeah, Henry David Thoreau would have been proud of that civil disobedience <laughs> taking place there. Is that is that a I don't know. I don't want to like mistakenly call it a next step because maybe this has always been embedded in what you're doing. But going from organizing the communities to win like elections for candidates to being the candidates that are running in the first place. Do you see that as a next step or more like what you're going to focus on as you move forward? Where's that sit? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I don't want to put it too much out there in the ether because then, you know, folks may come and try to neutralize us. But I'll say this. Right. Bad governance creates de facto voter suppression. When people aren't governing cities and communities well, the people don't believe it matters mm-hmm. who is governance. Right. So we as progressives, quote unquote, have to master the art of governing in a progressive manner on behalf of the least of these. Mm-hmm. I think that is about the quality of the candidate. Who are they? How do they run? Who is their loyalty to? Who funds their efforts? Mm-hmm. And so absolutely, you're going to see the Black Church Pack and some other partners over the next several years, not only identifying candidates, but attempting to to win slates of elections at one time 
so we can actually prove that you can govern in a progressive way. You can govern in a way that, that cuts police departments in half and put that money into outreach workers, crisis team, response teams, and basic income strategies. You can govern in ways where you take resources out of the incarceral budget, fully fund schools, give everybody a free food program in the city. You know, things that we claim are progressive strategies can't figure out a way to pay for. Is there, you know, I was always surprised when I went down to Florida how the Cuban population, you know, votes Republican. Is there categories where the Black Church PAC, you know, as a syndicate, you know, I'm speaking, you know, overall is more conservative than people would think on some topics? Are there places that would be surprising for folks? Well, I, I definitely think that, you know, obviously the, the issue around human sexuality, LGBT, um, sexual identity, those those things are are theologically, you know, very tenuous in, I'd say, the majority of Black churches. That's just no lie. I'm not going to sugarcoat that. Um, I also think issues around abortion is, is an issue as well. But I think people should just keep telling yourself 96% of Black women vote Democrat. Mm-hmm. Just period. Mm-hmm. So in the Black church... That stuff is not keeping black women from voting. Now, black men, the number drops to about 90%. So you got 10% of black men versus maybe 5% of black women who find enough dissonance politically that they may be leaning to Republican type candidates. So I just think it's important to always contextualize it. People may have dissonance, but how they vote and how they're politically postured in the world I think racism and racial discrimination can can really overcome that if we can articulate it. What do you think we can learn from you? You know, abortion is such like a single issue voter. And with so many voters, it's, it's a single issue they care about. You've been successful about building a coalition that cares about this, yet votes progressive. And I assume, you know, most progressive policies are more in line with Jesus and his teachings. It's always this irony of, right? Like you guys, you know, you say you're Christian, but you're voting, you know, Republican, which is all these anti-poor, anti-sick policies and they'll point at abortion just say like look i can't go against that how do you think we can talk to the the rest of that group that cares about that in a way where there's they're able to care about it but still vote more in line with progressive policies and and vote democrat so i'll tell you what i do and it's been working i tell them i agree with you i want to ensure we have the least amount of abortions as possible and i want to protect the autonomy of a woman's body So the research tells us you can do both those things without having to even touch Roe versus Wade. Mm. You can make healthcare available to every single person so women have reproductive health access. You can make sexual education free to everyone. And then you don't have to worry about folks wearing condoms, et cetera. And then the third thing is you have to make abortion safe and legal so people are not put in positions where they have to go hide all the research in the world says for those three things are active, you have the least amount of, of quote unquote abortions happening than if abortions were illegal. Right. You talk, you talk to the ends. You're like, look, this, this is, if this is what you want, this is this actually is the package. Want. Yeah. And, this is how and, you decrease it. And Xander, you'd be surprised how people's light come up. People don't take time to explain this to folks because keep it real. I don't mean no shade. White progressives largely are very afraid of faith and they're quite ap- apathetic about black people. <laughs> and so and so you put those two things together and you pretty much have 
you know, either faith as a nuisance and black people as a burden. Right. And I'm someone who loves faith and loves black people. So I've had to really figure out ways to explain what you said. Why would we support the Republican agenda when they're anti-Jesus? Right. When we can get the end that we want without sacrificing the priorities that we have. Any of this other stuff. Have you talked to other groups? It's so interesting. Have you talked to other groups trying to organize like white churches in the South and, and explain like, hey, this is the... This is the argument to make here, and th this is the winning argument I've found here. Are, are there are there other groups out there where you know you've been instructing them on how to do this? I've tried, but honestly, I've given up on the white Southern church. You know, <laughs> I, I, I feel like you know I was I was talking I was talking to some white evangelicals last last week or two weeks ago, and I thought, yeah, y'all had three hundred years, man. <laughs> yeah, it's just so this this willful obtuseness you have. I've just figured that we're going to have to defeat you, not violently, right? Right, At right, right, right. We're going to have to defeat you for your own benefit. Like, mm -hmm. I can spend all day talking to white evangelicals till I turn white, and they probably still won't understand why. Because <laughs> they've had 300 years, and I just think yeah. they're willful about it, this. It is one of the great mysteries in our country, for sure, is that like this, yeah, this huge mystery. religious base just keeps going in this direction. Well, man, I, I'm happy you're out here. You're doing what you're doing. It's incredible the work you're all putting in. One of my jobs, I think, over the next month or so as we move past this election is talking to our, our donors and, you know, uh, saying, hey, we, we've done something great here collectively. We've, we've moved. It's going to be $4 million plus as, as a group to black 501c4s, right? Political 501c4s, which is, as you know, hard money to raise. This is difficult money to raise. And the, the conversation I wanna have with this, um, this unbelievable group of donors who all came together to do this is that, like, just because Biden's in office, fingers crossed, that's where we get, this fight for racial justice is, is not over. And this support, especially in between election cycle support could be so game changing because black community organizers have never really had that in between election cycle, consistent support to stay staffed up, to keep doing this work, et cetera. So I, I'd love to hear for you, what does a properly funded black church pack with 10 years of real support, what does that look like? What does that do? What kind of world are we building? Just like talk about your, your kind of, what excites you most about the next 10 years if you're able to have the type of support you need? Wow, I'll, I'll keep it in three buckets. I'm a preacher, so I always got to like to have three points, you know? I, mean, <laughs> I think, I think the, the first point is being able to keep this unprecedented coalition fully staffed. I mean, we have groups of like five to six people in each denominational space that are pretty much volunteering their time. We give them stipends thanks to the defeat by tweet and other funders, but it'd be great to just put, you know, whatever team within these denominational and other spaces on like a full-time salary. So we can just go into the 2 million plus black church voters we've been able to contact. Like I want to be able to put them on a line, you know what I'm saying? And when we need to pivot them into action in cities across the country, I want us to be able to send them a text, send them a email, do a phone call. And we got tens of thousands of black church folk moving towards progressive causes. So, so, so staffing that out would be important. The second thing is building out the data infrastructure because as we know in this information war, data is currency. 
and we want to own our own data. We don't want to have to pay for other people to give us access to our own people when we have tens of thousands of black institutions across the country strategically situated every neighborhood where black people live. Like we want to be able to pull that data in and be able to use it for our own purposes. And then storytelling. We want to be able to influence culture. Influence culture on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, YouTube. We create in the black churches the most content probably next to network television because <laughs> we have programming happening literally every day of the week all across the country. But right. it just lives out there and we, we're not able to craft a narrative around liberation, inclusion, et cetera. And so that's what I would say, staffing the current effort so we can keep the momentum going and allowing us to raise up you know, candidates and organizers and activists that are grounded in these institutions, data, being able to have our own data, control of our data, and then influencing culture through storytelling and, and narrative. I think if we did those three things, among others, um, 10 years, uh, we would have helped to change the country for the better. Because I do believe in the Black church. Yeah, I believe it. it. It produced me. It's produced a lot of folks. We're not perfect, but it is a very important institution for liberation in this country. And when you're thinking about, okay, all these folks are organized, et cetera, what is on like the, I don't want to say immediate agenda because it's 10 years, but it's like when you're like, okay, I'm really excited and leaning in here. Is that DA elections? Is that police reform? I know it's everything, but like, what would look most different? Would like policing look most different in 10 years or, or who the DAs are would look most different? What would look most different in 10 years? Yeah, so material conditions are our most important, you know, short-term priority. So what is the thing that will allow our people in our congregations to feel like my participation in this has changed my everyday conditions? My reality, Gun violence, yeah. Gun violence is, is, is an important public safety. We have to reimagine public safety. So, so the ability to scale up a local expression of a taxpayer-funded violence prevention effort that defunds or reallocates from policing, that will be the tip of the spear. The second thing I think it will, we'll focus on election-wise, right, because that's a governance question. The second thing election-wise, we must hold on as you know, often as we can to progressive Senate races, congressional races, and mayoral and governor races. We have to have executive power to govern. And so we're, we're gonna be targeting mayors. Uh, you know, we're gonna be targeting some executive level governance at the state level, obviously the congressional level. District attorneys, you know, I know is a, a super popular thing. You know, I, I'm not one of these people who wants to put all my eggs in a bag of a prosecutor because their job still every day is to prosecute. But I do appreciate the impact it plays. But for, for us, I want to go a little higher. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yep. A prosecutor Makes can't fund a police department. Mm -hmm. But a mayor and a city manager can, potentially, right? A prosecutor can't reallocate or help champion the budget of a state being moved in a certain direction, right? But a governor can. So we're gonna we're gonna widen our, our electoral uh, commitments beyond prosecutors. Is there a good example of a city, like right off the top of my head, what I was thinking of Stockton, of like a city that's embraced that and like has, we've seen really nice results because of that. Is that a good example of like, look at, look at what's happening there when, when we focus on those types of races? Stockton is a great example. And I'll say uh, Michael Tubbs is one of my earliest partners when our work, 
you know, I helped bring Michael Tubbs on a, a delegation to the White House with Desmond Mead and Dorsey uh, Nunn right. back in 2000, what, 12, 11 or 12? When he was 16 or whatever he was. <laughs> He's a perfect example. Another great example yeah. is Ross Baraka. Another great example is Mayor Cantrell in Baton Rouge, right? Like yeah. these are places that I think are examples and uh, we want to be able to replicate and give them the power they need so they can feel like they don't have to compromise on these kind of uh, alternative visions of government. I want to let you go, but you touched on gun violence. And I think your approach to decreasing gun violence and how effective it's been is the one of the examples I point out in terms of community driven solutions versus like these top down solutions that we've been trying for a long time, right? Mass incarceration, punitive systems, et cetera, versus what happens when an organization like yours is funded and is allowed to be creative with the community in mind. Can you talk through, I know you talked about the results a little bit, 30 to 50% of you know gun violence decreasing in these cities. Can you talk through the strategy there, what, what you all do when you go into a city? Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's really important to know that less than half of 1% of your city's population is driving as much as 60% of all the gun-related shootings or homicides. Say that again. So very, very few people very are, are responsible for a lot of the gun violence. Most cities just police everybody in the Black community as if they are that small number of people. And what you're doing is you're playing whack-a-mole with black folks. And so I was one of the people who got whacked upside the head because they were trying to get somebody rather than just focusing on those individuals. We want to make the focus on those individuals though, really grounded in healing, opportunity, second chances, not just a hard like, you know, stick. And so our work helps to reconstitute the city's approach to gun violence. We hire or help get hired credible messengers, street outreach workers. These are people from the neighborhoods, people returning home from jail who've been rehabilitated and they go out in the communities and they are called street outreach workers. They go out and they help resolve conflicts. When conflicts arise, they help de-escalate it without needing the police to be there. We've called some of the individuals who are caught in the cycles of violence into a community conversation and we love on them. We give them a way out of the violence. We visit folks while they're in jail or prison and make sure when they're coming home, they're not gonna get caught back up in that cycle. And so these strategies funded by the local tax base creates an annual allocation where we don't have to keep begging or raising money to end gun violence. Mm -hmm. And it shrinks the police department's policing apparatus. So they are no longer needing thousands and thousands of officers to actually focus on something that's about 5% of their arrests. What do you say? I mean, you know, the data data wins all arguments, so you can point at the results, but that oftentimes I feel like in conservative policy, uh, politics, there's this like slippery slope fallacy of, oh, well, now you're rewarding a certain type of behavior and that will then create you know, more folks for whatever reason that are that are doing these things or or aren't afraid to do these things, right? There's this this punitive belief that it's like, well, you need the stick, otherwise they'll all do it. What do you say to folks who, to get them over over past that thought process? <laughs> well, I say to folks, you must not ever have been caught in a cycle of violence because nobody's mm. doing that for fun, right? Like, nobody's nobody is like engaged in gang life, gang activity, criminal activity for fun. This is right. literally a survival mode. The young men who are caught in these cycles, 
are always looking for a concrete way out that is just as concrete as the cycle they're caught in. Mm. I've had young people tell me stuff like, Pat McBride, I can put this gun down and I know that'll make you feel safe, but what's going to make me safe? Because that fellow over there still got his gun. Right. So guess what? I had to go talk to the fellow across the street. Hey, bro, right. you, he's like, McBride, I'll put my gun down, but what about him? They both telling me the same thing. So when right. we get in a conversation with each other and we create an a alternative where they both can feel safe and have their needs met, right. people willingly opt out of this lifestyle. And the fallacy with lots of conservative and some progressive folks is that Black people are just inherently criminal. And there's nothing that can be done to stop this kind of violence. Our work proves that to be false. And we have... We have an army of young men that we can line up and show you when you give them a way out that is real, they will stop and they won't. People aren't just joining. Oh, I get to I get to maybe get a twelve hundred dollar uh, life stipend if I participate in gun violence so I can get the McBride's program. <laughs> I'm like, how about this? Why don't I just give you the twelve hundred dollar stipend on the front? <laughs> end? How about right. that? That's right. called a basic income, right? Let's right. let me just give you basic income on the front end. Then we can we can do away with all the all the all the violence part. I heard Arnie Duncan. Arnie Duncan, right, is his name. Uh, yeah, Obama's Arnie. Secretary of Education, I think. Uh, say because he's doing anti-gun violence work in Chicago, and he was saying one one of the largest misconceptions. One of the things folks don't understand is that everyone's playing defense. Like we have the idea of violent people being on offense and like enjoying you know, enjoying the hunt or, you know, the offensive aspect of it. And he said, you, you, you talk to all these vulnerable kids and they're kids for the most part, right? It's wild how young, like everyone is in these, in these situations, right? Everyone gets arrested 16 and 22 and you realize they're all playing defense and they'd love to stop playing defense. And I think that's what you're touching on. The irony is that these kinds of investments, right? We could be making, mm -hmm. you know, the city of Tampa spends a hundred is going to get $163 million dollars. It's a wild number. That's a wild that number. number. All of yeah. you should look up how much money your local police department is getting. It's usually 30 to 50% of your general budget. So wow. this is an annual allocation of resources. If we just took 50% of that money, we could get a thousand people on the streets every day with benefits, solving violent conflicts without using the police. We could create a hundred something crisis response teams to respond to mental health issues. We can get 5,000 of the most vulnerable families caught in these neighborhoods on a basic income. That's just with the tax dollars that we have. But we gotta have elected officials who have a vision to actually get this kind of work done. And that's what we're gonna be doing. We're gonna be finding people to, to run and champion that work because it opens up a whole new world if you had hundreds of millions of dollars that were being used every year the community build and not tear down the neighborhood. Yeah, I don't I don't think most people are resistant to this idea of defunding the police. Fully understand how much of local taxes are going towards funding the police. Right. Like to your point, you're talking about taking them from 50 to 25%. It's still one out of every $4 would be going towards the police. People people just don't. No, I know I didn't. I shouldn't project. I didn't understand how big of a budget these police departments had until this this national conversation was being had around it. And and when we go we'll go around the country just before Defund the Police became a like a, a, a rally cry the last six months or so, we would just use that image 
to talk about gun violence prevention. And I would, I would be in meetings. I remember in Birmingham, Alabama, I was in a meeting at a foundation with all these community members. And I asked them, how, how much money does your police department make uh, have? There was a sergeant from the police department in the meeting. He didn't even know. Mm. And I was like, you know, just put out a number. There was like 10 million. I was like, $10 million? No, it's like, come on, y'all. 30 million. When they, they got up to like, I think 90, 100 million, and they were they could not believe right. how much money annually is going into policing. Yeah. And so most people just aren't aware. When they become aware, then it's around, this is how we, we reimagine the use of our tax base. Right. Well, look, Pastor Mike, I know you're busy. It, it's it's an absolute honor. I, I'm speaking on behalf of all, you know, the Feet by Tweet donors to support your work. You know, we're grateful that you're out there doing it. And um, just thank you so much. And thanks for spending time with us. Man, Xander, it's, it's a blessing to be here. And, and to all the donors and supporters, I just want y'all to know that your your generosity has made all the difference. And so thank you from the bottom of our heart. Your resources are blessing and helping people you will never meet. I'm talking about in the tens of thousands of people. So I just want to appreciate you and thank you. And uh, please keep being generous. Love you, Xander. Thank you, man. All right. Love you too, man. Take care. Thank you for listening to What We Don't Know. If you're looking for more content like this, you can head over and be a supporter on our Patreon, patreon.com slash WWDK. You can also follow us on social. We're WWDKpod on Twitter and Instagram. I hope this finds you happy, healthy, and safe. All right, take care.